Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. I mean, someone that has done it so many times that I kind of like lost track, you know, how many businesses, you know, he has been involved with, but nonetheless, you know, super inspiring. I think that we're going to be learning a lot, you know, from all the good stuff that we like to hear, which is around the deal-making side of things, around making a difference. Uh, but, uh, but again, I don't want to make anyone wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today. Dr. Eric Whitaker, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks a lot, Alejandro. It's, it's great to be here with you. So born and raised in the south side of Chicago, you know, that's a challenging place, you know, to, to grow up in, you know. So I, I, I love to hear, you know, and, and I'm sure that the listeners too, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, well, you know, Southside, I, I often say, is, is a beautiful place to grow up, but, but as you, you, your words, challenging. You know, so when you hear stories about violence in Chicago, the Southside is a large part of where that takes place. Uh, but the, the folks who emerged from there, I would say, who are successful are scrappy <laughs> and, and they know how to make something out of nothing. Now, in your case, you know, it sounds like you went to university. You know, you went to university, which uh, which was, you know, quite incredible. But but more than that, you know, you decided that the medicine, you know, side of things, becoming a doctor was the calling. So how did that, you know, come knocking, you know, to you? At what point do you really realize, hey, I think that this is my path to follow? Well, you know, I, I'm not unlike a lot of people from the South Side. You know, I played basketball in high school and college, and uh, I, I was fortunate to have a, a a grade school basketball coach who said that you're not going to be successful in basketball. Like, that's what he told our whole team. That's, but you can use ed- basketball as a pathway to education, and that can transform your life. And so I knew that from the time I was a junior in high school that I wanted to become a physician. Uh, the thing I also learned at that time was about public health. And I knew I, I didn't want to be a doctor for a one-on-one patient for all of my career, but rather to be a doctor for populations. And and so a lot of the work that I've done um, uh, since I, I started practicing medicine, you know, I did some practice one-on-one, but, but most of it was focused on caring for populations. And obviously, you know, working, you know, as in obviously the specialty here, internal medicine, um, but you worked in different hospitals. So yeah. what, what, what would you say, you know, what, what did you learn and what did you saw, you know, during this experience of going from one hospital to the next? Yeah, one, one thing that, that I think is has been instructive for me is that I've, I've worked only in public hospital settings. So San Francisco General Hospital out in, in the Bay Area, which was ground zero for HIV when I went there to, to go train. So I learned a lot about uh, you know caring for uh, vulnerable HIV patients, positive patients, and then came back to Chicago and, and worked for about a decade at Cook County Hospital, uh, which is one of the largest public hospitals. I saw uh, uh, you know, in San Francisco, that's a public hospital that works 
like it's supposed to. <laughs> it does a great job. At Cook County Hospital, not so much. <laughs> and and learn some of the the things that can be a challenge to to practice in that setting, but also, uh, you know, they learned a lot about the patients that are there and, and the needs that they have that oftentimes go beyond just medical care uh, that can deal with food security or transportation or other things that are, that are now called social determinants of health. Now, one thing that is very interesting here is the shifting gears in your career, because mm -hmm. here you are, you know, a doctor uh, doing stuff, you know, around internal medicine. And as, as you were saying, like being involved in different hospitals, seeing different things firsthand right there in the battlefield, you know, dealing with people. Why did you decide to transition over to private equity? Because it's just so different. The thing that I found is people with the sort of knowledge that I've garnered and experience that I've garnered with these populations working in these places were absent in, in, in uh, the for-profit sector. And so I, I, I was lucky that I, was, I, be, I started the first black men's clinic in the country um, that ended up getting a lot of national attention at the time in the late 90s and became the state health commissioner of Illinois uh, and, and got to see healthcare from a system systems perspective and, uh, you know, the policies that are made that impact people. So bringing all of those experience to the for-profit sector, I think, has been quite helpful as we, as we established uh, the, the company. I'm now the, the founder and executive chairman of Zinc Health. And we'll talk about this company in just a little bit. But, you know, obviously you have different, you know, big success stories, you know, that, uh, that I'd like to touch on, you know, real quick here. So, when you transition over to the private equity side, you were able to see also the investment side of things uh, and, you know, what was, you know, some of the pat those patterns on what's good, what's not so good when it came to an investment. And I think that that really armed you with with a worldview that then allowed you to really go at it as an operator and to perhaps, you know, like apply those lessons that you saw from the investment side into now being a founder yourself. And the first company that you did, that was Symphonic Health. So how did Symphonic Health, I guess, I guess, what was that experience that you were able to get, you know, on the private equity side? And then at what point do you realize, hey, you know, now is probably the time for me to make this shift and, and it's my time to shine as an entrepreneur? Well, well, uh, Symphonic Health was the for, first for-profit venture that a partner and I started. And so, you know, anybody who knows me before 2012 would say, Eric Whitaker started a company? And, and, and what I'd realized, like looking back over my life, I'd been entrepreneurial in, in government when I started Project Brotherhood at the Black Men's Clinic. I'd been entrepreneurial in, in the, the not-for-profit sector. And then the question was, could I bring the values that I, I, I've had all along to the for-profit sector? And so I, I think that, uh, you know, I came with a perspective, again, in working all these places. And and, and automatically, by, by coming from where I come from, I'm one of the experts, if not the only expert in the room, about the life and experience of the populations that, that I care to reach, you know, those who are most vulnerable and, and underserved in, in medicine. Um, so, so the, the you know, at, at some point, um, you know, in, in probably in 2012-ish, uh, I decided that I could raise money and, and really put into place the ideas I had on the for-profit sector uh, and, and try to make an impact on, on people's lives that way. So what was that impact that you guys made with Symphonic Health? 
Well, Symphonics Health was a company that we started in, in 2013, um, and we sold it in January of 2016, um, and, and focused on Medicare Part D, which is federal health insurance for pharmaceutical uh, products for drugs. Uh, and we started from scratch uh, and, and grew that over a three-year period to 48 states, uh, 420,000 clients, and, and $2 billion in drug spend. And we we sold that to United Health Group, uh, and and we impacted low income populations across the country, uh, at, you know, in terms of how to get high quality drugs to people uh, who who uh, really needed it. And also a fifteen x return for investors, so not bad, you know, for being the first for profit uh, company that you were doing. That that that's you know I think people in, in the investment world would call that a home run. <laughs> Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Now, now, I guess yeah. in, in this case, you know, for you, you know, one thing that is very interesting is, is your first company is your first baby. I find that typically founders that go at it for the first time, they become very much attached to the business. They think that they are the business uh, and it takes a little bit longer to perhaps, you know, go after the exit. In your case, it took no time. I mean, it was three years. I mean, would you say that maybe this was because you already had a good understanding of what the full cycle of a company would look like as a result of your experience being a private equity investor before? Yeah, you, you know, the you know, I'm I'm one of those who would like to be financially successful so I can write checks to things I care about. And and really, as you mentioned, there's a full cycle in venture capital or private equity that part of that cycle is exiting. And so I never had any illusions that I would own this business forever. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, being able to exit allowed me to, to write checks to institutions and in African-American community I care about, uh, to be able to support the, the academic institutions that, that made me who I am. And, and also hopefully, uh, as I continue to move forward, uh, be able to see new businesses, uh, and be an investor in other uh, enterprises. And I guess one, one of the things, I mean, when, when, when you take a look at, yourself, right? And, and and you're able to look back and, and the days, you know, growing up in the south side of Chicago and now how far you've come, you know, and mm -hmm. you were you were talking earlier about checks that you've written, you know, that uh, that to, to things that you care about. What would you say, you know, has been a check that you've written and, and, and as an example, and perhaps the one that has moved you the most? Probably, uh, you know, I talked about playing basketball, and I went to a Catholic school um, on the southwest side of Chicago called St. Rita, and they gave me a scholarship to come there. And, I, you know, I was in the top honors class there. Uh, they also, my younger brother, who's three years behind me, went to the same school. And so being able to write a check that supported 14 students uh, in my mother's name, uh, you know, I, I would say is one example of, of a check that it was phenomenal to give back to an institution that, that made me who I am. So, so I, you know, uh, my wife and I uh, and, uh, donate a lot of money to scholarships and uh, to, to uh, you know, African-American museums and, and uh, other uh, institutions we think are important, uh, you know, throughout the country. That's amazing. Now, talking about your wife. Talking about your wife, because the next day business that you actually started, it was with your wife. That's and that right. business, you know, it was Next Level Health. You know, another, another, you know, big success there. Eh? Yeah. So uh, yeah. 
So tell us about how, obviously, you know, at this point you were coming out of Symphonic Health, you know, you did that exit. So how did the idea of starting this next company come about and, and with your wife? I mean, that's, that's risky. Mm -hmm. Well, well, you know, in that business, we know who's boss. Uh, that, you know, my <laughs> wife was the, she was the CEO of the company. I was the founding uh, chairperson, uh, and uh, you know, but we saw a void uh, here in Illinois uh, for a firm that was founded by African Americans to really address uh, Medicaid. And, and again, on the south and, uh, side of Chicago, and also on the west side of Chicago, uh, that that company was. Uh, um, only based in Cook County, but for the time that we we um, owned it, um, you know, we we were able to get it to about 300 million in revenue, uh, and and had 65,000 clients. Um, you know, we we decided to exit it mainly because uh, something, and, and this is one of the lessons you learn along the way. Uh, one one of the 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 the, the, the we got a lender who had rights over what money we could bring into the business. <laughs> and and they wouldn't let us bring in money from outside parties. So we had an investor that wanted to put $100 million in the business so we could take it beyond Illinois to other states. And, and the, this lender which was a large incumbent insurer, didn't want us to do that. So, so they said no. And so we, you know, we, we exited that business because it wasn't in a situation where uh, we, we could grow it the way we wanted to. And as my wife uh, would tell you, she would say, if you can't grow, you're dying. And so, so we, we learned a lot of great lessons that have been applicable uh, uh, to being successful uh, in Zing Health. And, and a lot of the, the team we built in Next Level now is with me in our third company, Zing Health. And one thing that is very interesting here that I'd like to double click on is, you know, there's a book, it's called The Founder's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful book. And in that book, it talks about building a company with a family member, no? Yes. I find yeah. that when you build a company or when you start a company, like in this case, with your wife, you know, it's it's... You know, having that tough love and, and, and being able to share things the way that they are, right, so that the business is effective and the business is successful, sometimes it's not easy because you don't want to hurt, you know, each other's feelings. So how did you guys go about establishing that level of communication within the business outside of the house? Well, I, I think I, what I said earlier, I wasn't joking. That business, my wife was <laughs> in charge of. I was available <laughs> uh, to offer uh, advice and counsel, and 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 I really didn't offer advice unless asked. <laughs> you know, so so uh, you know, it, it, you know, you can you can have one leader at at a time. And, yeah. and, uh, but, you know, she needed help in terms of fundraising, which, you know, I, I'm a peculiar person. I love fundraising. I love the, the, the chase of money. I love trying to figure out who has it and how I can get it to help support my efforts. <laughs> my, my wife doesn't like that as much. And so, right. so, you know, one, one of the other things is that, you know, I leaned into where my passions are. And and uh, I mean, she used me in that way, and and uh, but but make no mistake about it, it was my, my wife's leadership in that that endeavor, and I was a part of helping it be uh, successful. But but you know, I was on her team, not not this wasn't a a co CEO situation. That's incredible. I mean, she definitely led the ship, you know, in the best way, you know, that one could think, you know, leading that to over three hundred million in top line revenue, and then you know, to a beautiful exit. 
Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. In your case, you know, an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, Eric. You know, so obviously, you know, the next company came knocking. And that's what you're up to today, which is your latest company, Sing Health. So walk us through the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to bring this company to life. Well, well, we talked about Symphonics, uh, which was uh, uh, so-called Medicare Part D uh, pharmaceutical insurance. Um, I had a two-year non-compete uh, for that company. And so as I started looking at, at spaces that were adjacent to Medicare uh, Part D, I started looking at what so-called Medicare Advantage Health Insurance. And that's a, a federal government program that, uh, you know, uh, people pay into uh, Medicare their working lives. And then when they get to 65, they're eligible to have health insurance. Traditional Medicare, just as a payer, uh, they bills come from doctors and health system. The federal government pays the bills. Medicare Advantage is a subsect of Medicare, which I think is a superior product and offers not only paying bills, but you get hearing, dental, vision, and a whole lot of other services like transportation or or uh, have a food card or over-the-counter benefits that I think is superior to traditional uh, Medicare. And when I looked at uh, the program, only 19% of African-American Medicare beneficiaries were opting to go into Medicare Advantage. So I saw uh, the potential of really trying to improve access to that program through education for the African-American and Hispanic populations, uh, but, but also for those who, that 19% who had elected to go into Medicare Advantage, they were having poorer health outcomes than other populations, even when they selected it. And given my, my uh, experience and my team's experience in Medicaid, and in, in Medicare Part D, I thought I could uh, build a company that could do a better job in getting health, health outcomes for 
diverse populations. And so in 2019, we started Zing Health, focusing on uh, black and brown seniors, focusing on the, the things that are important to maintain uh, one's health, like transportation or food. And, and uh, we started only in Cook County at that time. Uh, and we, we started offering insurance in 2020, only in Cook County. Uh, today, uh, we, we're in Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan in, in, uh, in 21 counties. And we ended up acquiring another company called Lasso Health that's in 34 states and in the District of Columbia. So, so we've expanded our footprint across the country. Uh, and the core products focus on black and brown folks and Lasso Healthcare. Uh, most of the members in that that business are rural health uh, individuals. So we, we're we're focused on the urban and rural uh, challenges that that our members have in those those two areas. So for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Sing Health? How do you guys make money? Well, you know, the federal government gives us uh, a certain amount of money per month per every individual uh, that's that's enrolled in our plan. Uh, that amount could become more if you have a chronic disease like um, heart disease or diabetes. Uh, and so we get, like, so let's just say if we get $1,000 a month, uh, uh, for a given individual, we, that means we get twelve hundred twelve thousand dollars a year for that individual, and we have to manage all the healthcare costs within that twelve thousand dollars. If we are able to do that on average, we we make money. If we can keep the cost of care less than twelve thousand dollars a year, if we if the cost are more than twelve thousand dollars a year, we lose money, and <laughs> so we're at risk. And so. So the, the incentive for us is to do all of the things that are helpful for keeping people healthy out of the emergency room and out of the hospital, because that minimizes the cost uh, that, that are borne every month for that individual. And, and if we do a good job of that, we, we make money. And how much have you guys raised to date for the company? Uh, we've, we've raised $190 million. Uh, again, we started in 2019. And it's a mix of, of, you know, we had a seed round of $3 million. Uh, we have had what I call, uh, uh, and I was, should say for the $3 million, you know, we had three three uh, uh, Silicon Valley venture capital firms that were part of that raise. Uh, we then had a, another uh, uh of uh, five million dollars, we raised what I which I call a C plus round, and then we had a, a private equity round. So we didn't follow the seed Series A, Series B, Series C sort of uh, you know trajectory. Uh, we we raised a hundred fifty million dollar private equity round, and then in November of of uh, twenty twenty one, when we acquired Lasso Healthcare, we raised another twenty five ish. Uh, you know, from a couple of uh, venture capital firms, uh, and 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 that totaled to 190 uh, million dollars. So, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of transitioning here from VC to private equity, from private equity to VC. Mm-hmm. What, why going from one to another, and then also what has what what is different when you go mm-hmm. out and raise money from, let's say, a VC or raising from a PE? Yeah, what I would say, venture capitalists uh, like to break new ground and try new business models, uh, you know, really push the limits. And and they get rewarded more 
you know, with more, uh, greater returns by taking that risk on breaking new ground. Um, it, it, uh, private equity firms, in my my experience, are used to having uh, businesses with proven business models, and, and 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 there's been some tension with our company in that regard because uh, we're trying to develop new marketing for the African-American and Hispanic populations that haven't been done in this product before, ever. <laughs> uh, and and so for venture, venture capitalists are more tolerant of risk and knowing that some stuff is going to work, some stuff is not going to work. Uh, the private equity folks are more like, well, you said it was going to work. <laughs> and and they have a higher expectation that when something happens that they'll get a certain result because they're used to dealing with more mature companies with more mature business models uh and and uh and so so I, I found that in our in our experience there's been some tensions uh, particularly when we're trying to do groundbreaking things that have never been done before and and like i said uh, and some of it doesn't work <laughs> uh the venture capitalists they they have very expectation that some things aren't going to work not so much for my my private equity backers and then growing via M&A, you know, as you were saying, you guys raised the last tranche to to acquire uh, this company. So how do you how do you think about M&A on the buy side to grow faster? Well, well, you know, one one way that we have sales is through third party brokers and and they're attracted by you being a bigger entity that has a, a, a national footprint as opposed to when we started, we were only in three states. So if you're a, a, a big broker and you have salespeople across the, the country, you want to utilize those salespeople. You don't want to only have uh, have folks be targeted to three states when you could have, uh, you know, uh, sales in, in 40 states. And so by by going through mergers, uh, a merger and, uh, and acquisition, that, uh, that allowed us to get to scale and be and and get the attention of those brokers much sooner than we would have if we were just grown in a in a, uh, a, a in a smaller footprint. The other byproduct of that business was that it actually uh, was profitable when we acquired it. So that means that we had to raise less money because that business that we bought actually was profitable from the time we bought it, whereas the, our core business uh, was not, and it's still not. <laughs> So, so it it, it gives it, it allows us to raise less capital and have more runway uh, to grow the company. And it sounds like you guys are growing this nicely too. You know, you are at yeah. 135 employees, which is great. Uh, oh, I guess 185 employees. 185. Wow. So, yeah, we're so. we're and 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 the thing that's interesting since COVID. Uh, you know, we we were requiring everyone to live in Chicago. Since COVID, we now have 185 employees in 32 states. <laughs> so we've wow. been able to to attract talent from the best talent for for from all over the country. And we have a seasoned team that we we have no right to have, <laughs> but for the fact that we're able to attract talent wherever it, it happens to be located. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight. You wake up in a world where the vision of seeing health is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, right, right now we have uh, roughly about 10,000 customers. Um, and, you know, I, I would love to see us at 250,000 customers across the country. And, and uh, you know, th th that's, uh, these things tend to grow slower, but, but I, you know, I could see us having the scale 
um, and also be a, a, a model of what can be done for diverse populations so that other health insurers have to pay attention and, and steal what we're doing <laughs> to, to uh, you know, keep pace with us. And so we would have a, a, a multiplier effect throughout the industry uh, because we're doing novel things uh, that impact diverse populations that others aren't doing. And you know what? One one thing that I keep hearing, you know, here as 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 you're speaking, Eric, is saying how fast you adjust, you know, to whatever you know is in front of you. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that's something that um, that you talked about, you know, when when how you adjusted to the remote, you know, work environment, and and mm-hmm. to now having people in different states, and then also to the way that you dealt you know, with raising capital uh, also in COVID because, I mean, the remote yeah. stuff is coming out of COVID. So yes. how was that experience of of raising money, you know, in COVID where you really need it because you guys were like uh, really running short on runway? And most importantly, who do you think that you needed to be in the moment of, in a moment of uncertainty like that to be effective and not get too much in your own head? Well, as as a, a leader, I, I had to have every conviction that we could get the money raised. Um, you know, and, and I, I often tell about how we almost went out of business four or five times during COVID. Uh, and you know, we, you know, and, and before COVID started, we were due to to get a forty million dollar check in in January of of twenty twenty. COVID hit. Uh, actually, we were supposed to. We we made the deal in January 2020. We were supposed to get a 40 million dollar check in in March of 2020, which is exactly when COVID hit. And so we were expecting that check, <laughs> uh, and and then we were told by the the check writer, uh, you know, we want to take a pause <laughs> while we see whether or not the world is falling apart or not. And and that check didn't come until. Uh, um, May. So we went from March to May without the, the check. And, and when it came, it wasn't $40 million. It was $18 million. And we were down to $300 in our bank account when it finally came. Wow. <laughs> Three, $300. Wow. And, I, you know, I, I would go in my office and, and we had 30 employees at the time. Uh, payroll was $100,000 every two weeks. And I would call for dollars to get us to the next payroll. And, and uh, Alejandro, I walked out of my office one day and there were six of my 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 staff in a circle praying because <laughs> I, I hadn't told anyone that we had financial difficulties. And I went over and I was like, what's going on? They said, we're praying that you make payroll. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. and I said I said you all know and they said of course we know because I would go in my office I didn't share the burden of not having the money uh, but the the our team believed in us so much that that you know people were working uh, with you know and, and and doing doing things for our members our our patients uh, despite the fact that we didn't have money but I would raise money every every payroll to get to the next payroll until we we uh, got the eighteen million dollars. Um, in in uh, May of 2020, and, and you know the, those employees will walk through a wall for this company. <laughs> you know, so so we we you know we we've been through some hardship, and and, and we know there's going to be additional hardship, and and we also know we're going to get through it. That, so we we have a profound belief in the destiny of this company, and and everyone here is rowing in the same direction to get to that destiny. That's incredible. Now. 
imagine if I was to put you into a time machine, Eric, and I bring you back in time to that moment where you're maybe like now a private equity investor and, and wondering, you know, what you could do of your own and maybe start your own company. If you could have a sit down with that younger self and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, you know, the, the lessons that I learned from Next Level, you know, that, that I brought over into Zing was the importance of having enough capital at the beginning uh, of the journey, uh, because, you know, what I ended up, uh, you know, and my wife and I signed a deal, um, you know, that ended up being a challenge for the company. But it was one of those situations where we signed a deal on December 27th that had the the uh, language that allowed someone to determine what capital we could bring in. But if we hadn't signed that deal, uh, January 1st, we would have laid off 250 people. <laughs> And and so to my younger self, I would always uh, urge, you know, get enough capital at the beginning uh, so you're not making decisions under duress <laughs> that could alter the, the trajectory of your business. And and so, so you know, and that, that's why I think fundraising is so critically important and also making sure you have the right partners who are who are willing to go to go to go to the, the mat with you, and and uh, help you build the sort of company that you want to build. Be, be, you know, having the right partners, uh, financial partners, critical to success, and and that that's one of the things that um, you know I have great partners uh, now. That when when I have a problem, it's their problem too, and they want to help uh, solve it in, in the best ways for all of all of all concerned. So let's say throw a bonus, a bonus, you know, thing in there. Imagine if you could go even earlier in time, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. to that moment where Eric was a young kid, you know, growing up in the in the streets there of the south side of Chicago and, you know, seeing all the challenging, you know, things around you. If you could have the ear of that younger, you know, uh, self of that, of that Eric, of that kid and and give that younger, you know, person, you know, that younger self. One piece of advice about life, mm -hmm. because you've come a long way. What would you tell that that kid in the south side of, of Chicago? Well, th this is advice I give to my kids <laughs> and to other kids is develop strong networks, nurture them, you know, be, be someone who's, uh, who helps networks thrive, you know, help other people. Because what I found is, you know, it circles back around, back around, and when you need help, you can get it. Like uh, Zing would not exist, but for the networks that I've been building for the last thirty years, uh, the 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 initial team. Well, I told you earlier, I have a team that I don't deserve <laughs> for this company at its size. And because of the, the people I was able to tap to come with me on this journey, Our, my co-founder and chief operating officer um, is, is a guy named Garfield Collins, who is a, a phenomenal operator. And he fills in, he's smarter than me in every way I would ever want in operations. Every person on our team is smarter than me at what they do. But they wouldn't be here if I didn't have the vision. And I, and I could raise the money to put the vision in place. But but the network makes all the difference in the world. Being able to, to uh, call people for advice and say, hey, this is the problem that I'm seeing. How did you deal with this? Or, hey, I need to raise money. Do you know this person? Because the other thing that uh, in venture capital, 
particularly in raising money, people want to have a warm introduction to the venture capitalists. They don't want someone who just shows up. They want you to be vouched for by someone that they know and trust. And so, I, you, know, I, you know, we have seven venture capital firms on my cap table. And that's really because of relationships that I've nurtured over three decades. That's incredible. So for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? You know, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and, and you can certainly find Eric E. Whitaker uh, on LinkedIn with Zing Health. That, that's probably the best way that I, I actually meet people is uh, through LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, hey, it has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you for helping DealMakers become better. So thanks a lot for your work, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.